Welcome to another episode of Eclectic Intellection. Uh, today we are going to talk about New Orientalism. And my guest uh, today is Professor Ian Almond, who is currently a professor of world literature at uh, Georgetown University in Qatar. Uh, we are going to discuss his 2007 book, uh, and here's the title of the book. Uh, it's The New Orientalists, Postmodern Representations of Islam from Foucault to Baudrillard. Uh, the book was published by I.B. Torres in, again, 2007. I was going to ask you sort of if you could say a few words about um, how some of your earliest projects developed, perhaps for your Ph.D. So what, what did you work on? So, I mean, my Ph.D. was basically uh, it was the English literature Ph.D. And I was interested in Derrida and negative theology. So I was interested in a, a medieval German mystic called Meister Eckhart and the various flirtations that Derrida uh, has, his, that his vocabulary has with the apophytic tradition of negative theology. And then my, my professor said, you're not going to be able to do this in an English literature PhD. You have to bring in an author. Um, so I brought in Pinter. So my PhD had the slightly bizarre title of uh, the mystical space in deconstruction, negative theology, and the British theatre of the absurd. So in the end, I was looking at sort of the mystical, the the, the notion of the unspeakable in in these three very different regions. Mm -hmm. So be between that project and this book on new Orientalists, um, how I mean, how how did you sort of jump between one? Uh, uh, to the to the next, uh, I can I mean I can, Derrida obviously is in here, but maybe more broadly speaking, Orientalism as 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 an idea. How how did you come across that? I mean, I think primarily because uh, I initially, like I said, I initially had sort of uh, was working on a comparative study of Derrida and a German uh, mystic, and then uh, I went to live in Turkey. I went to work in Turkey, and there I encountered the writings of a Sufi, a 12th century Sufi called Ibn Arabi, uh, who is, and this is a cliche, it's not, it's not a correct phrase to say, but the, he is sometimes thrown around as the sort of German, as a, as a sort of Arab Meister Eckhart. It's, it's, a, it's a clumsy phrase, but I was introduced to him in that optic. And the more I read of this Sufi, who is a, a, a very sort of considerable name in in the world of Islamic philosophy, the more I saw sort of uh, all kinds of analogies really leading in both case of Derrida and Ibn Arabi to an earlier already extant set of uh, tropes and metaphors and terms from a kind of very loosely termed a, a, a neoplatonic or even middle platonic tradition, mystical mm. tradition. So uh, that was what brought me into sort of the whole question of the extent to which many of the ideas in, for example, something as, or at least then, what was then very cutting edge and innovative and, and, and hot, if you like, as you know, French post-structuralist theory, uh, the extent to which actually a number of these motifs were, were actually, had a much, much longer genealogy. And of course, from there, we get into all kinds of questions of, of you know, how histories of ideas develop and 
how uh, something as, as, as incredibly rich as, for example, the history of Islamic philosophy and Islamic mysticism uh, sort of drops out of these conversations and, and people sort of read these, these French post-structuralist texts without fully appreciating the, 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 the depth, the, the shadow, the length of the shadow that these, these devices, these tropes throw. And so, yeah, that got me to thinking more and more about the ways in which the Western canon sort of is, uh, Derrida would say, self-present, the extent to which we, we read these Western canonical thinkers there's really no sense of any kind of non-Western precedence. I wanted to ask you two two questions. So one is um, this, who are these new Orientalists? And the other question is a question I usually ask um, on this podcast. What is at stake in in this discussion about the new Orientalists? I guess I, I just want to start out by saying it is a book I wrote now almost like somewhere between 15 to 20 years ago, and I was browsing through it the other day just to sort of refresh it in my mind. Um, but I, when I, I present these nine names, and for the record, it's uh, Nietzsche, Foucault, Derrida, uh, Christophe, Baudrillard, Zizek, and then there's three classically known as postmodern writers, three three names, Salman Rushdie, Orhan Pamuk, and Ben Borges, the Argentinian writer. It's certainly not with any sense of rigid, very tight definition. It, it isn't that they... It, I think it would be very foolish to try... Given the already extremely nebulous nature of the word postmodern, um, the idea that they are sort of... There's any sort of even remotely vague manifesto which links them all together... Uh, I, I did it so I didn't present it in that optic. Um, but there are sort of nine names which, more or less, for better or for worse, are associated with a whole series of motifs that we would consider to be postmodern. Um, the calling into question of rational rational thought, the the rejection of any kind of set of uh, mimetic references to a reality out there which sort of decides whether statements are true or false, the belief in the kind of performative nature of of language, that language generates its own truth, you know, all of these various ideas that are associated at, at various times with with uh, that that sort of word, the postmodern. So I mean I'm I'm sure you know that in the nineties in the late 80s and 90s, and then it spilled over into the, the, the early, into the 21st century, there were these sort of various back and forths between um, sort of theory and anti-theory. So you had, particularly within philosophy departments, you had these huge divisions between continental theory and um, Anglo-American sort of analytical approaches. Um, and the the growth of theory, in particular of names like Foucault and Derrida in the 90s, and, and I would say especially outside the departments of philosophy. So it's almost a, a truism now to repeat this, that it was in comparative literature departments and often English literature departments, there was an explosion of, of theory. Um, it did lend some of these names uh, an almost uh, sacrosanct, an almost godlike air. And I, 
although I, I had a very sort of ambivalent relationship with these names, um, and there was a frustration with the extent to which some of these names, particularly Derrida and Foucault, had an almost a feel of Aristotle Dixit about them. You know, like it was enough to invoke their name and then whatever sentence followed was sort of magically rendered valid by. Um, so I think that was one of the things which, which brought me to consider writing in Turkey at the time. Obviously, working in uh, what you might term the Middle East at the time, I, I was living for two years in, in the very middle of Turkey before moving to Istanbul in 2000. Um, I was sort of curious what these these magical names actually had to say about the non-European. What would you say about this, the stakes here, though? Like, what is at stake in terms of your analysis? My uh, impression, um, so after rereading the book, um, read it a while ago, and again, rereading it for, for this podcast today, Especially when you talk about Borges, um, and you you mention you also analyze um, his short story Avro's Search. What's at stake? Uh, it seems to me what's at stake in that short story is also what's at stake in your book. In some ways, that story is about the inability to fully comprehend another context. And it seems to me that what you're looking at here is again how much of a gap there is. Um, between the contexts uh, in which these authors lived and this other context that they try to sort of bring in, into their writing in, in different ways, right? But but I get a sense that these neo-orientalists' uh, approach to the Orient, again, has something sort of lacking in it, has something sort of that, that's uh, somehow in some ways, not complete, not comprehensive, not, it's not a real engagement with the Orient, right? The Orient is always this sort of blind spot. So, so it seems to me, again, that, that really what's at stake is, um, you know, how we, writing in one context, uh, perceive and talk about another context. Well, I mean, it's really great that you point that out um, with the example of Borges, Um What's there's something slightly different also at work though, because it's not it's, at times it's not so much an inability. It's actually less charitable than that. <laughs> it's um, an unwillingness or an indifference. You know, there's an element here of imperiousness, of a kind of Eurocentric indifference to because remember we're talking in the case of people like Foucault. We are talking about figures who, you know, Foucault himself coins the phrase to think the thought from outside. I mean, they, they were trying to think of different contexts. In fact, many of the, some of the reasons why these people um, traveled to the Middle East was to get some sense of an outside. But when you mention Borges, Borges is probably the most positive example in the book because in the case of Borges, I argue that when you look at his his short stories, what you actually get is almost a kind of verarbeitung, almost a kind of working through of this epistemological block. That at the beginning, okay, we have you know the, the usual camels and belly dancers, the usual sort of pastiche of the Orient, but then it, it's sort of Borges he seems to sort of grow aware of the fact that this Orient that he's talking about is nothing more than a collection of fragments from an archive. 
you know, he's never been to these places. These these phantasmatic uh, landscapes that he has are are really sort of relying on these 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 collections of writings from other human, other Westerners. And in that remarkable final story, um, I think it's Averroes' Last Search, uh, he tries to imagine the famous figure of Ibn Rushd, Averroes, as he encounters for the first time the word tragedy. And then the story breaks, <laughs> and he says quite explicitly, um, as soon as I realized that I was here writing this, the story dissolved. So, I mean, Borges, I think, would be one of those figures who actually realizes that what he's dealing with is our fantasies. Now, uh, I don't know whether you could necessarily go to each of the theorists in the book and say that. Certainly, when Foucault goes to Iran and basically refines all of the things that he had already recorded in Tunisia, um, I found that, uh, I think of all the texts, I did find that the, to be the most surprising. Mm. Because if mm. there's a single person whom you would credit with uh, a kind of heroic struggle to overcome the, uh, what would Wittgenstein would call running up against the, the barriers of language, yeah, or what Rorty would call the desire to leave your own tribe, the, the, you know, the liberal ironist, uh, the Foucauldian liberal Linus is constantly tormented by the fact that there's, he's been born into the lang, wrong, wrong language group, that there's always another tribe outside which is, thinks differently from him. I mean, Foucault sort of seems to be the archetypal thinker for that, right? Um, and yet, nevertheless, he can, he can go to Iran and talk about Persia, a land which has, a culture which has been immobile for a thousand years. Um, I, I did find that interesting that this, this incredible intellectual versatility and sensitivity immediately switched itself off when it talked about the non-European. Yeah, that, that was the that, irony that came up right. again and again and again. Sorry. Right. Now, I, I, actually, I just wanted to read a couple of lines from this uh, short story on, on Averroes. So again, um, it, it's, a, it's a slightly sort of complex story, but uh, what it boils down to is uh, he is looking, um, he is sort of studying Averroes' inability to understand something. So here, let me read a couple of lines here at, at the end of the book, uh, at the end of the short story. So he says here, I recalled Averroes, who, bounded within the circle of Islam, could never know the meaning of the words tragedy and comedy. I told his story as I went on. I felt what that God mentioned by Burton must have felt, the God who set himself the task of creating a bull but turned uh, out a buffalo. I felt that the work mocked me, foiled me, thwarted me. I felt that Averroes, trying to imagine what a play is without ever having suspected what a theater is, was no more absurd than I, trying to imagine Averroes, yet with no more material than a few snatches from Renan, Lane, and Asin Palacios. And then he says, I felt on the last page that my story was a symbol of the man I had been as I was writing it. So in other words, what he seems to be suggesting here is that there are a number of sort of parallel impasses here, right? Uh, uh, sort of a place, again, that you cannot pass. Uh, um, 
uh, Averroes trying to understand tragedy and comedy, n- never having seen a play, is kind of like Borges trying to understand Averroes not having lived in, you know, uh, medieval uh, Spain. Uh, so, so there's a kind of politics of despair here a little bit, right? There's the sense in which even when we really, really try, we really cannot bridge that gap between two contexts. That That's uh, sort of what, what seems to emerge. Although, again, it's a little bit more complicated than this, right? But then to, to kind of move from the story to your to your book, what seems to be happening here is that it's it's not so much that there's a gap that somebody's trying to bridge very hard but is unable to do so. It's that uh, there is no real intention to bridge that gap. There's a sense in which uh, Foucault and again the rest of them, uh, even when they are in uh, you know the Middle East, quote unquote Orient. Uh, they're not really trying to understand uh, the society around them, right? So that that inten- that intention disappears, and then to to kind of bring this to my final point, that I'd be, I'd be interested to to hear what you think about this. Reading your book, I felt that to some degree, to some degree, it read to me like an indictment of postmodernism. Now, I'm not sure if that's what you intended. You probably didn't intend that, but right, there's a sense in which. The book shows us what could happen if you kind of adopt a postmodern perspective and, and take it to almost its logical conclusions, I mean, especially with Baudrillard, right? Um, the context, um, you know, there's this politics of despair with Borges about bridging contexts, but here there's a kind of politics of indifference. Yeah, I mean, uh, just sort of going backwards through what you said, like with the dis- just to, I'm sorry to repeat this, the uh, a similar point, but with Borges, I don't know if it's necessarily despair because at least he gets it. Do you know what I mean? At least mm. Hegel says, um, "Was dich begrenzt, uh, befreit, ermöglicht dich auch." What what limits you? also enables you like you know if we are trapped by the finitude of our own language like right now even at the same time it is that finite language which enables us to speak we would not as soon as we we try to be in the world we are historically finite beings we it isn't necessary our limits are also our means of of being right um and and i think borges has a borges the author not the narrator has uh, uh, probably the healthiest awareness of that there. He doesn't continue with the lie. He stops mm. the story. But I do think it's interesting that you raise this, this idea of intention, because I think that is quite crucial. The extent to which these thinkers, were they really sort of interested in the cultures that they were visiting, or um, were they uh, simply looking for either a kind of external position with which to view their own culture, which is what Nietzsche explicitly says. Yeah, remember he says in a letter to his friend, I'd like to live in Tunisia for one or two years. Uh, probably I'd like to live in the most Islamic part of Tunisia I can find. That way it would sharpen my eyes for all things European. So really there is a kind of, there's almost a kind of proud indifference to it. doesn't really matter, but as long as it's not a Western culture, as long as it's peripheral to the thing I'm, I'm studying, you know, it's pure instrumentality. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, yeah, you do have sort of a sense in which uh, when Foucault, and we're constantly talking about Foucault and Nietzsche, but 
when Foucault travels to Iran, he really is trying to find some, it, it has something to do with his own antagonistic relationship to uh, modernity. And he really is trying to find some sort of version. And it's a Nietzschean quest. He's, he's trying to find some sort of version of the pre-modern. And this is where I think it becomes very problematic, where you really sort of start to see uh, projections at work. You know, he's, he's really just like constantly, you know, he, he, in an almost Rousseauistic way, he is sort of saying how real people are, how real students are in Tunisia. They're not like their French counterparts. People really mean what they say here and so on. You know, it, it's almost as if there, there's a authenticity to the Orient, which is not found in fake, civilized, uh, superficial Europe. You know, here, they still sort of mean what they say and say what they mean. And these are, these are sort of, I find, very sort of problematic intentions. But with regards to the, um, the larger question, whether, whether it's an indictment or not, because uh, there's a danger here. We'll skip ahead to the, to the ideas of whether anything's changed in my mind in, in, in sure. talking about this book. But um, at the time, I don't, I don't think it was. I certainly didn't want to participate in those cultural wars of the time. There was a lot of polemics back and forth about postmodernism, about theory, about the theory canon, about its moral or cultural or political detrimental effects. Uh, and that's quite apart from the, as I mentioned, the Anglo-American analytical rejection of you know, Foucault and Derrida. And I didn't really have much time for that. So if you like, it was more an observation of a series of ironic contradictions within theoretical canon. Right. I mean, absolutely. The, the text uh, did not read to me like a polemical work. Um, I mean, this is a very careful analysis of all of these thinkers. But um, let me maybe read a sentence, uh, the, the last sentence, a part of the last sentence that you wrote on, 2000, uh, page, uh, on page 200 and, uh, 203. You say, what remains surprising is that so many of the figures responsible for delineating and demonstrating this situation of epistemological finitude so visibly fail to escape it in their own work. So um, with someone, I remember if the, the, the biggest shock I had in obviously reading uh, the, the works uh, of these thinkers before writing the book. Uh, I remember that the, the biggest disappointment I had was with Kristeva. I had uh, read Kristeva as a as a grad student, and I had I'd really admired her. I'd always admired. She always seemed to me to be the 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 feminist theorist who really sort of like tried to look beyond binaries. You know that that as a ma as a male student, as a, as a male grad student, uh, it wasn't a locked out. It, her theory, her the 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 spirit and vocabulary of her of her work uh, didn't lock uh, one gender out, but really tried to sort of speak in imaginative and exciting ways about the space beyond these sort of rigid binaries. Um, so when I read what she had to write about sort of Arabs and the Muslim world and that, it was uh, quite quite disappointing to see. Uh, how she simply sort of, uh, in many ways, reiterated very conventional cliches about the Muslim world to an extraordinary, 
extraordinarily simplistic degree, um, talking about, you know, the Muslim spaces of, of unfreedom and, you know, w- without any sort of like self-doubt or possible uh, hesitation or epistemological anxiety, there was this sort of confidence with which she simply picked up, you know, these easy phrases about the, the Arab world. And and I think that was, uh, for me, that these what came up again and again, but particularly with people like Kristeva, was this sort of disparity between the, the rich, sophisticated, careful language she would bestow upon her own Christian culture. And then the way that simply dropped, the way that dropped away when she moved outside that precious space of Europe and talked about Turkey or the Middle East. So again, what we're getting back to here is a is a kind of is a, it's a Eurocentricism which, which really sees a, a a Europe of complexity that that sort of ends at a certain point. You know, so it's a Europe of complexity and depth and multiple inner dimensions and nuance. And then as soon as you step over that, whatever it is, Gibraltar or Belgrade or wherever that, that boundary is, suddenly we're in these kind of like monodimensional signifiers. There's a way in which you show how these thinkers, if you sort of, I'm trying to think about your, your more global argument about uh, New Orientalism here. Uh, let me again give you my sort of take on this. After having read the book, I, I had the impression that what they're collectively doing is sort of really, again, using that oriental context, using that that other, quote-unquote, to delineate a little bit more who they are. So there's a sense in which the way they're thinking uh, who they are through the orient, it's a sort of via negativa. There's a way in which the orient provides the foil, provides the other that puts into sharper relief who they are. What do you think about that? Is that would that be a fair? No, I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a, that's a fair um, evaluation. I think what you're really seeing there at the heart of that, when you, when you is the the possibility that even though the if you like the postmodern critique of modernity uh, saw itself as, as as stepping away from modernity, saw itself as a, in a kind of iconoclastic fashion, as, as breaking, as having what Derrida would call a rupture with this 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 vocabulary of the modern. For me, the the irony that came up again and again is that they take with them, nevertheless, a lot of the colonial baggage of the modern. And that that was for me one of the ironies that that mm. in critiquing modernity. They do nevertheless reiterate many of the colonial tropes of of modernity. Um, and this is this is something I wanted to ask you about. So this question about how this argument fits more broadly, um, I wanted to ask, you. You mentioned Said um, often in the book. Um, so so is New Orientalism a sort of continuation of traditional? old Orientalism to a surprising degree, or, or do you find that there are still some sort of fundamental differences between these two versions of Orientalism? So I think I was, I think in the book I was arguing for some degree, some veins of continuity. Hmm. Um, even just something as crude as, for example, the repeated association of 
the Muslim world with the medieval, which comes up in almost every single thinker, every single figure in that book. Every time they talk about uh, whatever Muslim topic or whatever Muslim land or culture they're referring to, it's medievalized. Now, just, just to give one example, that for me was such a strikingly um, colonial trope. I'm not sure if it's necessarily the same, because I think one of the, if there's a single thing that perhaps makes it different is that certainly in some of these figures, there is a kind of ironic awareness of the idea of Orientalism. And in fact, when you get to the end of the book, you have figures that are contemporary enough to be, to be aware of, of names like Said. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, obviously 1978 is Orientalism. They're, they're aware that, they're, that the term Orientalism now has this negative uh, hue, has this negative connotation. But what I think is interesting is that even so, there is this sort of like attempt to find sort of ironic disclaimers, but then they, they carry on with essentially the same point. So Kristeva, for example, this is just now me speaking off the top of my head, but somewhere she talks about the ridiculousness of 18th century French caricatures of China. But it doesn't stop her from providing her own caricatures of China. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you find this in a number of figures. And certainly in the case of Zizek, I think Zizek's an interesting figure because I've retur- after I wrote that, uh, I returned a couple of times to Zizek's writings to write different things. And he certainly, to put it to use a, an ordinary phrase, he ups his game. So if you look at the Zizek after, writing after around 2005, he really did put a lot of reading. And if you look at his very latest books, he's reading Zayuddin Sadar, he's reading Edward Said, he's reading you know, a number of figures. So would you say that, I mean, you, you stress a lot the, the, the kind of hollowing out of Islam, of, of the Orient, right? The kind of emptying of, of the context as well. So there's maybe a sense in which the, the content-rich traditional Orientalism, you know, the classical studies, I mean, the, the linguistic training and the rest of it gets emptied. And the way this travels into new Orientalism is that uh, the reflexes are there, sort of the, the you know, the kind of uh, the, the broad brush approach to the Orient is there, right? The, those reflexes are very much present. And again, those reflexes are used via negativa to define, uh, you know, who they are as postmodern thinkers, but it, it seems that the content, again, uh, you know, the the sort of the deep engagement with the content is sort of gone. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about content here, um, I think that what we really have here is very often is a kind of selective filtering of content. So. Uh, when Foucault flies to Iran, he reads uh, Henry Corbin on the plane, who's a famous French uh, Iran-based uh, Orientalist. It, it differs from figure to figure. When someone like Nietzsche, Nietzsche hardly makes any real effort to read a great deal about Islamic history. He plays with it. You know, he reads about the assassins. He reads a lot of secondhand accounts, but he never reads the Quran. He never sort of like really makes it down and, and sort of tries to sort of find out about this culture. So, yeah, I mean, it, following what you said earlier, there is a very much a sense in which 
Nietzsche has this logic of my enemy's enemy is my friend. His critique of Judeo-Christian modernity propels him towards a, a positive set of projections on with Islam. So. Yeah. Isn't that also then a type of indictment of postmodernism? If we think about this in terms of a tree, right? If the trunk of the tree is tradition and, and modernity and the sort of sense of objective knowledge, and if the branches are a slight departure from that, maybe some other version of modernity that's moving towards postmodernism, and um, if from the branches, is if we get down to the leaves of the tree, so if the leaves are sort of, uh, you know, they fall down and they get scattered. And if the leaves and, and the kind of rearranging of leaves represents postmodernism, uh, isn't there a sense in which, uh, you know, they're so busy playing with these sort of leaves and these little scraps, uh, the, the trunk, the, the, the tradition, the, the, the content, uh, whatever else you want to call it, is so far, you know, it's so far removed that that something has been lost, that there's a sense of loss here. I mean, to begin with, like, as I said at the beginning, I, I really am not sure about the, 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 the term postmodernism. I mean, it's not a, I see what you're saying, but I don't know if any, these, these, these writers are moving in step in, in, a, in any kind of like, according to any kind of manifesto or according to any kind of program. But what I think you, you could say is that it's not not so much postmodern, but what we're seeing here is the consequence of a a kind of radical epistemological skepticism. So, if you have, and it, it is one of the things which unifies uh, almost all of the the thinkers in the book, there is this kind of radical uh, epistemological doubt about you know, truth claims, about narratives, be they religious, be they scientific about any attempt to talk truthfully and meaningfully about the world as a collection of facts and events. And I think perhaps there is something about that, some of, something about that fact that has repercussions. Um, this, this, uh, it might explain perhaps a, uh, a certain unwillingness to sort of really sort of take an anthropological or deeply ethnographical commitment to research and reading about another culture that 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 may be the case i mean the uh, the way in which foucault and christeva can say these huge statements about cultures that they they really have haven't been reading for more than a month and i think spivak has an excellent essay on uh, christeva where she points out uh, how christeva has these huge she talks about a uh, a thousand years of Chinese poetry, really on the basis of one small essay she read in French about it. It's it, it, it's an easy thing to mock, but at the same time, you really sense behind that this kind of almost indifference to the enormity of the task in front of you. If you don't feel that there is something called cultural identity that needs mm -hmm. to be researched and studied for years or decades before you you can speak truthfully about it, then, you know, it might explain some of the more, I won't say cavalier, but you know, it might explain a lot of the confidence with which uh, some of these thinkers felt they could be nonsense. On that front, then, what what are the, the wider implications of, of your argument here? I think there was the validity of the theoretical canon itself that gradually, as I said at the beginning, it became sort of more and more, more than anything else, the, the profound Eurocentricity of the canon. 
And when you think about it in those terms, the fact that uh, our names is, is so ubiquitous now as deconstruction, as Foucault, are, are so limited in their attitude towards the non-Western. I think the, the, for me, the, the, the wider implication was that, and it's a depressing thought, but that uh, increasingly our intellectual energies are being sent hurtling along a trajectory that has been formed over the past 50 or 70 years with an extremely narrow set of parameters. I'm not just talking now about us as Western academics, but you know, when we look at the way non-Western academia is folded into and incorporated into this kind of global academic structure now, um, it is for me uh, somewhat disturbing to see this. Disturbing maybe is a strong word. So, for example, I'm on a I'm on a Facebook group where um, it's a it's a Muslim majority Facebook group of uh, Muslim intellectuals sort of trying to sort of rethink ways after Saeed of, of talking about Islam without relying on the West. And it's you know clearly there's a, a whole set of challenges there. But the, the extent to which Foucault is still invoked as a tool in this is is, is curious, right? It is it is ironic. And I remember in, when I lived in Istanbul. Um, thinking this, I remember walking through the the library here, Isam in Uskadar, the Islamic Research Library, and meeting a lot of people who were uh, a lot of Turkish intellectuals who were really sort of interested in in Derrida and in deconstructive and, if you like, Foucauldian or new historicist arguments. Um, obviously, with the men in Turkey, it had its own set of Agendas. They, they were interested primarily in finitizing and historicizing the vocabulary of, of you know, European Enlightenment. But it does show how, yeah, there is the, this, this concern that, that, yeah, that we basically have a, a, a series of, of a whole set of tools now, which, which have uh, come from a, a very limited uh, set of a very limited toolbox. One thing that I find fascinating about all of these ideas that uh, they're, they're, they are putting forth um, are, as you say, appealing in certain contexts. And the way I understand this is that if if uh, thinkers who live in contexts that are perhaps more rigid, that have more rigid sort of meta narratives that are imposed from the top down, I think they they find something seductive about Foucault who who questions things. Right. There's a sense in which, again, to use the category postmodernism allows them to to poke holes into those those meta narratives. Right. It, it gives them some sense of freedom and, and liberty. Right. But on the other hand, uh, there's also a way in which um, if a thinker is operating in a context that is uh, inflected, let's say, by postmodernism, where there is no uh, rigid or maybe any discernible meta narrative, uh, there's a sense in which postmodernism sort of just adds to the confusion that makes things even more fragmented. And in those contexts, thinkers are more inclined towards some type of meta narrative. So there's a sense of kind of moving away from Foucault and the rest of them. One thing that I wanted to also add to this um, is. Could I just say one thing yeah, sure. quickly to the point you said? 
Um, I think it's a very interesting point you, you bring up because uh, what I do find amongst uh, some colleagues, some Muslim colleagues, and this isn't a criticism, it's just an observation, is that there's this um, tremendous desire to use aggressively the, the epistemological skepticism of, of figures like Foucault when it's attacking thought systems outside the Islamic tradition, or even thought systems they don't agree with inside the Islamic tradition. But then there is, a, there is again, a kind of shut-off switch when it comes to talking about uh, their own faith. There is a sense in which some, uh, I think, some Muslim thinkers, quite rightly, fair enough, uh, appropriate these, these theoretical vocabularies in, in a variety of different ways in, in engaging with secularism or radical feminism or, you know, ethnic nationalisms. Um, of course, in the end, deconstruction is a is a two-edged sword, right? I mean, you can deconstruct your oppressor, but then when you try and uh, establish your own identity, having liberated yourself, it, um, that the same sort of set of philosophical uh, obstacles still still arise, right? So I just well, I, I just wanted to agree with you with that. Sure. And it gets even more complicated, obviously, if you want to deconstruct uh, deconstruction or if you want to apply postmodernism to postmodernism. Um, but maybe as, as a final question here, um, I, I wanted to ask you about something that sort of stems, I think, from the debate about the, the long-standing and then still unfolding debate about Orientalism. Um, you know, one one accusation um, that Saeed faced is um, that he himself was engaged in essentializing. You know, Orientalism about, is about how the Orient was essentialized, but then in studying Orientalists, uh, Saeed might have essentialized you know, Orientalists. Mm. <laughs> um, sure. So I, I wanted to, so so I'm not sure if you, you, you must have come across uh, this sort of sub-debate within Orientalism. What do you think about that then? Uh, you know, here you're studying sort of um, these new Orientalists, and I think you're very careful to point out that you're not trying to sort of lump them together. You're not trying to establish, again, some kind of a meta-narrative about them. So, so some, of, some of the things that perhaps Saeed does in Orientalism, you know, you're not really trying to do here. Uh, but still, there is this, the, the issue of essentializing more broadly speaking, and in more, more fundamentally the issue of, of categories and how we categorize. So I just wanted to ask you yeah, if, if in sort of in terms of the reception to your argument, uh, if, if some might've, uh, you know, mentioned this idea of, of, well, if we, you know, if we use this category of new Orientalism, what are the implications of that? Yeah. I mean, uh, to answer it very simply, like, with the idea of the new Orientalists, um, that was just a provocative title. Um, it was more, I was more interested in the recurrence of five or six particular tropes in a pattern of different but loosely connected thinkers. Um, whereas I think the case with uh, Saeed, uh, his his argument is a, a lot more uh, ascend, uh, It's a lot more solid based. Yeah, I mean he really is making a claim that there was this if you like, civilizational project, where an Orient was institutionally, not just spontaneously, but institutionally constructed with empire in mind explicitly. You know, those are very serious claims. I, basically, I, I sympathize with Saeed, um, and certainly the 
the, all of the, by now, slightly outdated arguments that took place in the wake of that book, I do sympathize. I think you have to shout to make yourself heard. And I think that's what Orientalism, the book, was. It was a shout. At the same time, um, the way he's trying to, uh, uh, I mean, he uses Foucault, right? Foucault's idea of discourse, that there's something like an Orientalist discourse out there, that that's a coherent discourse. Uh, you're not suggesting that there is such a thing here, that there's a sort of very kind of, to some degree, centralized discourse that these uh, new Orientalists have adopted. Um, I, I certainly think there's a a discourse in the sense of a certain way of speaking that emerges in certain moments or in certain texts. Yeah, I would, I would definitely oh, okay. argue that. Yeah, um, I wouldn't argue that there was some kind of organisation um, behind these very, very different figures. I don't think there's anything sort of calculated about this. But I think there's a Eurocentricism is a is a is a curious reflex. And I think it sort of it comes out uh, in in very strange moments in very strange ways. But I do think that when it does appear, it is a manifestation of something latent and bigger and broader and deeper. I don't think these are just individual ticks. I do okay. think there's there's a there's some sort of um, there's some sort of cultivated unconscious vocabulary mm. about the way we, we view the planet's history of ideas. And I, it's one of the reasons why I think I've in many ways veered away from just simply trying to analyze this. So, you know, I've written two or three books trying to sort of you know, deconstruct and expose and analyze the various ways, prejudicial ways in which certain thinkers approach other cultures. Um, because I don't think it works, to be brutally honest. I don't really know how much of an effect it has. And so certainly over the past over the past three or four years, one of the reasons I've moved into world literature has been to sort of, in an almost performative way, try to decenter notions of world literature and world history through South 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 methodologies. So looking at doing comparative literatures across Mexico, Turkey, and Bengal, asking in 1947 what was happening in Istanbul, Calcutta, and Mexico City. Okay, so well, perhaps uh, we'll stop there. Uh, thank you again so much for having taken the time to, to talk to us about uh, this book that you published a long time ago again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's been memory lanes. So thank you, David. Thanks. <laughs>